Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Industrial policy, security of supply chains, and military mobilization for a modern era of great power competition are front and center for the Biden administration. Indeed, when it comes to defense trade, the administration is trying to reconcile a buy American strategy for government procurement, while at the same time bringing aboard allies and partners to develop technologies and capabilities to better stand up to China and Russia. Joining us today are among the nation's leading defense industrial strategists, Mark Kansian, a retired United States uh, Marine Corps Reserve Colonel and a veteran of Vietnam, Desert Storm, and the Iraq Wars. He's now a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and has done some truly groundbreaking work on modern military mobilization. And Dr. Jim Hasek of George Mason University and the Atlantic Council Think Tank. He is the author of the recent issue brief, Security of Defense Trade with Allies, Enhancing Contracts and Control in Supply Chains. Jim is also the author of an upcoming book, Securing the MRAP, that works to get to the heart of military innovation. Uh, Both appeared in a recent Atlantic Council uh, event last week uh, that is worth checking out. Mark and Jim, thanks so very much for joining us. Happy to be here. having us on the show. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Jim, uh, you discussed the vital importance of uh, security of supply. Uh, and, and many assumptions were shattered, uh, as you note, in the beginning of your paper by COVID. It, indeed, the need for self-reliance and, and fragility of some of these worldwide supply chains is what prompted uh, the uh, the convening of a, a supply chain panel chaired by representatives Alyssa Slotkin uh, and uh, Mike Gallagher, who reported out their findings recently. From your standpoint, what are, what are the key takeaways uh, of your report? Sure. You know, first, before we get into that, I should say that I'm, I'm happy that Congress managed to put uh, Gallagher and Slotkin on it because having listened to what they've had to say and, and read some of the, the report, they definitely found two smart and level-headed people uh, to respond to what was a genuine crisis back in 2020. Uh, it was indeed that crisis that spurred folks at the Atlantic Council to come to me to ask, could you take a look at this uh, and, and tell us what we ought to do to think about, you know, what we ought to, how we ought to think about this in the future, and specifically to look at the question of, don't we have arrangements with allies that are supposed to take care of problems like this? By like this, we meant, you know, the sudden, the sudden shortage of all sorts of medical supplies, medical equipment in particular, uh, for the COVID pandemic. The takeaway from the report is actually pretty simple, that we, we do have a lot of what I'd call formal, informal, not quite agreements. They're arrangements that are written down. They're specifically, specifically note in them with lots of countries that they don't have the binding force of international law. They're not considered treaties, but because we've written it down, we can look at each other in an intergovernmental way and say, when, when, when going gets tough, we're going to try to take care of you and you're going to try to take care of us, bearing in mind that we also have domestic obligations as well. So how well does that work when we need to rely on allies in a crisis and a supply chain problem? Uh, what I found 
was it works actually fairly well because these problems almost never rise to the level of newsworthiness. They almost always get resolved at the working level by people well below, you know, the title of secretary or minister. And then I can only find really three cases in the last 20 years in which there was a problem that, that made the news about, you know, a, a deficiency in supply uh, in a crisis. And, and these were all resolved pretty quickly. It was one, uh, you know, back during the uh, early days, of the, um, the Afghan war and the Iraq war involving uh, timing circuits for JDAM bombs. And there was a misunderstanding on the side of the Swiss company Swatch actually, that was making timing circuits. And while it got a lot of play in the press, it, the whole thing got resolved within a matter of a week or two. And then there was a matter in the Iraq war around 2008 that there was a, a shortage of steel, really high grade, armor grade steel for MRAPs. Uh, I looked into this when I was doing the research for my dissertation. You know, Sweden isn't even a formal ally. And the company that was making the steel wasn't even subject to the intergovernmental agreement, but some phone calls between Washington and Stockholm, you know, got, got a, a flow of armor grade steel flowing in a way that it wasn't before. And then the last case was this, you know, the COVID thing. Um, and the, but the effect, you think the effect of the Defense Department was actually pretty minor. Uh, there was, there's been increased American exposure uh, in the supply chain to high quality, low cost Mexican aircraft parts. This has been a good thing. Uh, but Mexico doesn't prioritize aerospace production in the same way the United States does. So in early 2020, there were some calls from the Pentagon to the Mexican foreign ministry asking, because their defense department doesn't really deal with these things, can you, can you lean on the government uh, to perhaps get those factories going again? And because of North America, excuse me, because the United States is such a big market for them, those factories got going again. Right. So what we found is that it's almost a non-problem. And when we do have problems, they get worked out at bureaucratic, through bureaucratic channels. Mark, let me bring you into the discussion, right? COVID uh, became uh, sort of a rallying cry uh, for uh, basically the Defense Production Act and uh, the invocation of military mobilization uh, almost, right? We're, uh, the White House is intervening and we're going to get car manufacturers to make ventilators. For example, uh, the uh, success of the vaccination program and the production of vaccines were seen as a triumph of the Defense Production Act. I think that many of us look at the Defense Production Act a little bit differently than was used in these cases. But is there anything about our response to the COVID pandemic and whatever success or not in your standpoint, what is, what, are there any lessons here for the kind of future high technology military mobilization that we would need in a confrontation? I mean, did we exercise anything that's valuable in this process? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And yeah, on the one hand, there's always value in exercising um, uh, the industrial base and you know stressing it to see what it can do. Uh, we did that, of course, during the wars. You know, um, MRAPs, as Jim has written about, were a great example. But there's really a big difference between uh, surging production of hand sanitizer and surging production of F-35s and uh, our ability to surge production of these major weapon systems is very circumspect, you know, very limited. Uh, our um, 
you know, our report looked into that and found that even at surge rates, uh, it was going to take about seven and a half years to replace current inventories. Um, so we, we really had to think about other approaches uh, rather than just building more of the stuff we were using. And, and what are some of those other approaches uh, that we need to bear in mind? You know, because folks try to invoke sort of the World War II model in terms of what military mobilization looks like. Uh, and, and, you know, as you have noted, uh, both in your talks and in your work, it didn't move, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't as abrupt or as quick as people perceive it, right? So what's the model that we need and what are the key lessons from the past we should bear in mind? Yeah, uh, the lesson we should not uh, lean on is World War II. And the one we might learn from is World War I. Uh, many people refer back to World War II, as you note, thinking that if we get into a conflict, we'll convert civilian industry and surge production of weapons and then you know, um, um, replace losses and increase the size of our forces. You know, what they don't appreciate is that we really started surging for World War II in about 1936 when the United States starts expanding the Navy. Um, by 1939, you get the aerospace or the air um, industry going with orders from France and Great Britain. Summer 1940, you have the draft uh, uh, and mobilization of the reserves. So that by Pearl Harbor, the United States is mobilizing absolutely as fast as it can, but it still takes another two or three years before US forces are really large enough and well-equipped enough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Wehrmacht and the Imperial Japanese forces. So it's a, it's a process that takes six years and that's just way too long for any, imagine, you know, any conflict we could imagine with China or Russia. But I say, so, go, oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was gonna, cause I was gonna take you to the World War I, right? Yep. World War I was a completely different kettle of fish. Exactly. Um, in World War I, the United States didn't start mobilizing until the declaration of war. There were a lot of, sort of political reservations about appearing uh, to get ready for war. And as a result, we were way behind. So when US forces went overseas, they were equipped mostly with foreign equipment. Uh, the British and the French provided us with tanks and artillery and machine guns. And many of the um, uh, weapons that we did produce were built to uh, British or French uh, designs. And that's the part that, where we, uh, that, that might be useful in thinking about future mobilizations, because even if we surge production of uh, equipment, it's not going to be anywhere uh, near enough to replace losses. But if we look at what foreign governments have, um, you know, what are the Brazilians producing that we might uh, be able to use? You know, what are the Western Europeans using? Uh, that might be a way to fill this gap, but it, it goes way against uh, so prevailing culture of the United States only using U.S. weapons, uh, forgetting our experience in World War One, where we in fact fought mostly with foreign weapons. Uh, and and it's it's worth saying that you know, for example, World War One aces uh, had a tendency of of flying uh, European aircraft, right? I mean, uh, Spads uh, in in particular. I remember as a kid meeting A. Raymond Brooks uh, and thinking that was got to be one of the coolest things ever. A World War One ace in the in the in the flesh. Jim, um, let me uh, ask you about this sort of bifurcated 
message the Biden administration is delivering. The president has talked about the importance of Buy American and that federal tax dollars should be going to American products. Gosh darn it. Um, at the same time, the administration is talking about bringing in allies and partners more closely, at the same time turning on some of those allies and partners and letting members of Congress know, hey, we're going to have to strip ourselves, whether it's on ballistic missile defense or National Reconnaissance Office, you know, we have to strip ourselves from foreign content. And at this point, these global industrial chains, as you note, are sort of seamless and problem free, right? Even if you want to try to find uh sort of uh, a reason for protectionism. They're not very good reasons for protectionism. How's the administration going to meld these sort of disparate messages of, of, of sort of buy American, but we're not going to close our market and be, become protectionist? Isn't it one or the other? Well, there is that line, you know, by James Q. Wilson, that bureaucracy does its thing, or excuse me, I'm probably misinterpreting you know, somebody else, but it's, it was Robert Coleman. Robert Co Blowtorch Bob. Right. Yeah. Blowtorch Bob said uh, bureaucracy does its thing. And um, this actually reminds me of 2010 with Ashton Carter's Better Buying Power memo talking about intellectual property rights and weapon systems. He said, you know, we ought to think about more often acquiring the data rights, like the rights to the designs of the things we buy. I'd like people to go out and, and, and explore that more. And in certain corners of the bureaucracy, this got interpreted as we have to go buy everything now because Dr. Carter told us. Dr. Carter said no such thing. So I, with the NRO, look, I, having you know read that portion of the statute and then heard about the policy, I, this sounds like an overzealous implementation. Uh, and we're going to see that because, well, if bureaucracy does things, so, so do bureaucrats. Um, there's a clear tension, right, uh, between buying American and buying from allies. But there is a carve out in federal law that says that these policies are not supposed to apply to countries with, which, with whom we have free trade agreements. So I, I wonder if a lot of this is just sort of, you know, Democratic Party Sturm and Drang to convince us that we're doing something, damn it, even though it's not ultimately going to have, a, may not have a huge effect. Uh, and from my perspective, that would be just fine, uh, not just because often some of the best kit is made overseas. And if I were the guy in the field fighting, I would be much more interested in whether or not I was fighting with the best kit available than whether or not it was made in Oregon or Belgium. Uh, we should also remember, as long as we're talking about the First World War, and I think it's, I, I really do think Mark is onto the right thing here. That is a much more, for many reasons, that's a much more apt analogy historically for a future American industrial mobilization problem. So I was talking about the first war. Let's remember that a major portion of the reason that the Brits and the French held out for so long and the Germans and the Austrians were not able to is that the former had access to the global economy through not just their extensive you know, world-spanning empires, but okay, this sort of sideline ally, the United States, this industrial powerhouse, right. uh, and the Germans and the Austrians were boxed in, that, that there was only so much they could do. There were only so many resources they could draw on. And that was a powerful distinction. And so it would be a really good idea 
to keep yourself as open as you can to all the benefits of the global economy. Bearing in mind that there are certain things that you're going to want to stockpile on, there are certain things that you're going to want to definitely make domestically for some reason, but you just have, you better have a good reason, which is hard to find in bureaucracy sometimes. You better have a good reason for choosing those things to protect. Uh- I want to get to uh, what are some of the things to stockpile, uh, as well as uh, protectionism's impact on mobilization in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of all domain command and control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of uh, the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show next week. Check out our coverage uh, over the course of the week. Uh, What are some of the things, Jim, that we need to uh, stockpile? And Mark, I want to come to you in just a moment and ask you about protectionism's uh, impact on an ability to mobilize at, at scale the way we need to. But very quickly, Jim, if you were stockpiling, what would you be stockpiling, right? Would it be masks and, you know, ventilators or what would you be stockpiling? So, you know, that one's actually less than totally obvious to me. And the reason is that um, between Spanish flu and COVID-19, we had a couple of things that were scary but not that grossly stressed the healthcare system. So I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm definitely not one who deals with, you know, the likelihood of another respiratory pandemic. But uh, there are some things for which you would not, you would not efficiently stockpile because you thought that the chances it was gonna happen were so remote that you wouldn't actually wanna spend the money. Uh, If you're actually, however, worried about war with China or war with Russia, then the sorts of things that I'd look to stockpile are those on, for which you would have uh, a very high, you know you're gonna have a very high expenditure rate uh, where uh, the production capacity is, how should I say, you don't wanna leave a lot of production capacity in peacetime because it would be expensive. So things that are say capital intensive to produce, okay? Um, but also things that are easy to store and have relatively long lifetimes. So, you know, as Marcus pointed out, it's a good thing that we've got a couple thousand surplus M1 and M2 armored vehicles. That's very helpful. Um, I would worry substantially about inventories of precision guided munitions because we're going to go through those like popcorn. And while they're expensive, they're not as expensive as ships, you know? They're also, uh, how should I say, I'm not sure that they're as easy to, you know, the production's quite so easy to ramp up. Mark knows more about this than I do. Um, But I worry less about things like, we're certainly not going to go out and stockpile guided missile destroyers. It's just not a terribly cost-effective thing to do, in part because we should wonder about whether or not, you know, they're ever ever going to get into the fight in the first place. Mark, uh, let me uh, bring you into this, right? So what is the impact of protectionism on what it is we might need to do, right? Because at some point, the administration is going to take or, or may take actions, right, for domestic and political reasons that end up being potentially negative on a global stage, right? Even though we've spent 30 years um, talking about an opening and fighting against by American, what are the implications of protectionism on the kind of mobilization we need to do or may need to do? Yeah, let me, let me give you two answers. I mean, one is that with weapons, it's mostly a cultural issue. That is, the service is getting used to the idea of using weapons from other countries. Uh, you know, many of those countries would be quite willing to 
send those, sell those weapons to us if we wanted them, you know, like the Brazilians, for example. Uh, but we're unwilling to um, uh, be flexible on uh, requirements, for example. And then there are by American provisions so that uh, for weapons, you know, we only have a, a basically a domestic market. We buy a few things overseas. Uh, and it's that cultural element that we'd have, we'd have to get over first before we start tackling uh, uh, legal authorities. But in terms of things that you might want to stockpile, building on a point that Jim made, um, hanging on to some old equipment and mothballing it uh, would, would actually be quite a good idea. You know, our mm -hmm. inclination now is to um, scrap old uh, weapon systems. Um, some, some we scrap them, some we, um, you know, use as targets and some we will give or sell to allies, but we, we tend to get rid of it pretty quickly. But that could be our surge capability there. Uh, and for relatively low cost, we could mothball them and then in an emergency, haul them out because it wouldn't be that expensive as Jim pointed out. You know, you can't build M1 tanks and then put them on the back lot um, and, you know, in, in case a conflict breaks out, they're just too expensive. But you could spend a small amount of money to mothball the older tanks. Now, people might argue, well, it's, it would be improper uh, to haul out all that old equipment and send it to war. We should send our troops to war with the you know, top of the line equipment. And I agree, it would be great to send with top of the line equipment. But the, after a couple of months, that is going to be chewed up and the old equipment may be the only replacements you have. A, and it's a not, tank. A tank is better than no tank. Right. A tank is better than no tank. Plus, it's not like our, say, plain vanilla M1, you know, with the 105 gun, is going to be going up against a, a Soviet Armada tank because all right. of those tanks will have been wiped out also. You know, the M1 <laughs> is going to be going up against a T-62. And, you know, I, I, I think we'll win that fight. So, uh, you know, you have to keep in mind that attrition is working on their end also. Um, I, I should point out um, to, to the audience, right? I mean, this is why we would mothball ships and time and again, whether it's World War II ships coming back into service uh, for Korea, then being mothballed, then being brought back into service. We did that with the battleships. Excuse me. We did that with the battleships, for example, uh, that came back in the Vietnam War and then came back again during 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 the Reagan era. And I should uh, tip a hat to you, right, Mark? You were in the Marine Corps where an M60 was uh, was a new tank, <laughs> and the Marines were the last ones to get rid of the M60s. Uh, you know, stretching almost into the, stre stretching into the 90s, in in, in fact, um, when the when the M1s uh, came into service. The the question to me, uh, Mark and and Jim, I'm, I want to come to you uh, just in a moment is. How do we need to think about the mobilization, right? So you're giving us a great historical example. There is also a concern about modern tooling that in World War II, the tooling was in some cases simpler, whether they were lathes or stamps or forges and things like that. And so the workforce was not as specialized. And so you could flex welders uh, and riveters to a whole bunch of different things. Whereas now it's, it's machine operators, newer machines are a little bit more flexible than they were. Additive manufacturing, it is at a better place. So that gives it greater flexibility. What does this industrial base look like? And moreover, 
in World War II and World War I, almost everything we did came from within U.S. borders, right? The Iron Range would produce the, the, the raw ores that turned to steel and Holocrafter radios were going from Massachusetts over to California. Now we're drawing on global supply lines. What does this mobilization machinery look like and how adaptive and fast moving is it to convert from iPhone manufacturer to radio manufacturer? Or is that completely long way, wrong way of thinking about the problem? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. There's no, there's no uh, question that conversion would be difficult. But my, I, I would make two responses. I mean, one is that what you get out of the civilian sector doesn't necessarily have to be exactly what we're producing now uh, in the defense industrial base. It might be that some um, civilian version of a radio, for example, might be pretty good, might not have all the capabilities that a military radio would have, but it might be something that you know, Apple could produce for you uh, or that some components uh, of your information systems you know, would be something that Apple could produce for you. Um, the, the other thing is that there may be some bottlenecks that we can relieve using authorities in the DPA for not a huge amount of money because we have to be realistic. The services are faced with a lot of bills. They always have more claimants than they have money. So they're not gonna pour huge amounts of resources into industrial mobilization, preparing for this kind of long war. But they might be willing to put in a couple of tens of millions of dollars uh, through the DPA to relieve some bottlenecks that might you know, have important um, uh, implications later on, particularly, for example, for munitions, as Jim pointed out, where you're likely to be using them at a much higher rate than you're expecting. I mean, even if you could double the production rate for relatively small peacetime investments, that would probably be worthwhile. Jim, uh, what's, what's your sense on this? And moreover, what happens when China, and, and Mark, uh, very quickly to you as well, what happens when China pressures our allies and partners and says, hey, I'm going to cut you guys off completely or manage to uh, you know, put the real economic squeeze on you if you help America, right? I mean, partly the Chinese uh, economic, diplomatic, and political might is being created uh, to pressure allies and partners, right? I mean, there's even basing concerns that if the U.S., uh, you know, that the China might squeeze the U.S. out of forward uh, Pacific bases uh, as well by pressuring host countries. You know, what, what's a way to think about this and avoid it? Because that's a potential global attribute that does not deliver when we might need it to deliver? Well, at a certain point, countries have to decide, you know, who's their better friend. And I don't worry quite so much about, at this point, given all that's been said in foreign capitals, I don't worry so much about uh, American inputs to, you know, weapon systems that are being, say, produced in South Korea or Japan or Germany coming under pressure because, that economic pressure works both ways. If you want to be part of the global economy, you have to be vulnerable to the global economy. The only reason that in an economic sense is, you know, as a buyer and a seller that you export is so that you can earn enough to import. Uh, the, the alternative is mercantilism and it doesn't really function, you know, in the world. So while that's a problem, that's going to be a that's, that would absolutely be part of the conflict. And it would be part of the preparation for the conflict. Um, I think you, we do need to be careful about knowing 
whence those inputs come. But we should also remember that there are likely a lot of things that the Chinese military uses that are coming from Western countries as well. And that uh, the, it, the problem cuts both ways, that if it's a vulnerability for us, it's a vulnerability for them as well. Uh, Mark, let me uh, slightly change the question to you. John Hyten, the vice chairman, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke uh, at NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute on Monday, uh, a blockbuster statement from him that, look, war games have demonstrated the Pentagon's on the wrong track. Uh, big war game that U.S. forces apparently did not fare well in uh, trying to defend Taiwan against China. And he made the case, we've got to rethink the whole uh, enchilada about how we're going to be fighting. Talked about contested logistics, I would argue, and many would. Logistics are always contested. We saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan as easily as in World War II. But ultimately, what do his statements mean about how we need to think about the problem and think about it in an integrated way? And uh, unfortunately, we don't have as much time for this. So very briefly from, from you and, and, and Jim. And Jim, I'm going to ask you briefly about your book in a second. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, we don't know a lot about the war game that Hyten was referring to. It's classified. So it's difficult to make uh, specific comments. But it does raise two questions. I mean, one is that there are surprises in war. Uh, I wrote a piece about this called um, Coping with Surprise and Great Power Conflicts, that the war is going to unfold in ways that we don't really understand. And for that reason, we need a wide variety of capabilities and a very uh, diverse industrial base. Uh, and the other thing is, conflicts are likely to chew up equipment at a very high rate, and we need to be uh, ready for that. Uh, almost every war game that uh, you hear about has come to that conclusion. So again, it's not going to be like our experiences in the 2000s, where U.S. losses of equipment are relatively modest. It's going to look a lot more like World War II. We need to think differently about that. Jim? I agree. We don't know what, what, was, what this war game was all about. It's classified. And there have been plenty of classified war games or unclassified war games, which have been more or less scripted that have given us results in which the U.S. gets its face handed to it or in which the U.S. triumphs. So, you know, you can build a model that will tell you all kinds of different things. All that said, I think that I would back that statement up to about 1995. And I'd say that the Pentagon's been on the wrong track for a lot longer than just recently in that our force structure still looks a lot like Cold War light. And it makes you wonder if we were all this time preparing for counterinsurgency, why do we have all these artifacts of trying to fight the Soviets back in the 80s? Um, I think that the Chinese have done a better job of pivoting to prepare for modern war structurally. I think the Russians have done a better job. You still see some holdovers in their force structure that makes even less sense for them. But yes, I, would, I think it's time for a really thorough end-to-end -end scrub on what we're doing. Couldn't agree more uh, with that. As you guys know, uh, the three of us have been writing along these lines for a long time. So this very much, uh, as I've as I've joked with folks, it's 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 Alcoholics Anonymous, right? It all starts with the <laughs> right. acknowledgement of the problem. And and John Hyten is now sort of now you can sort of work it. Unfortunately, he's doing it towards the end of his career at the very twilight, where folks tend to take this kind of risk. The question is whoever his relief is and reliefs and whether they go up to the White House will will think uh, the, the same way. Um, you know, kudos to you, Mark, right? We're, we're going to lose 
just like it surprised us how many MRAPs we were losing and how much ground equipment we were losing, we are going to be losing F-35s and bombers and other airplanes with at equal numbers, right? And I think on ships and people don't have a tendency, have a tendency of not being able to wrap their mind around what a great power war and how rapidly it chews through, uh, you know, even the highest end equipment. Jim, we've got about uh, 30 seconds left. Talk to us about your book, Securing the MRAP. Uh, and uh, what the key takeaways are. And we'd love to have you back to discuss it in greater detail when it's out in a couple of months. I would love to do that. Securing the MRAP is about, the subtitle is uh, Lessons in Marketing and Military Procurement. It, it, asks, it, it asks, is not the first problem in, in mo- military mobilization or industrial mobilization a marketing question? It's a matter of trying to figure out what it is that the market needs because quite often uh, the military does not want what it is that it needs. And that uh, the MRAP was a classic example of this in which folks in industry, in government, and then finally some sort of field grade champions in the military had to get together, sometimes in a synchronous, sometimes in an asynchronous way, in order to get the armed forces, as I say, to, to want what they needed. You know, there's, there are tie-ins all the way back to the First World War, because we were talking about the First World War, that... You know, the, the Brits almost lost the Battle of the Atlantic because they were fixated on the German high seas fleet instead of being interested in the U-boats. And you were talking about American aces flying British and French aircraft. You know, my, my, this was, this was the, that was the doctoral dissertation of my undergraduate thesis advisor. So this goes way back for me academically that, you know, our own folks in aircraft purchasing could not figure out what they wanted our pilots to fly. And that was a major portion of the problem. We've been dealing with this for a hundred years. Maybe next time we'll get it right. I'd love to talk about it on the cast. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolutely great conversation. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Mark, thank you very much. Jim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.